Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I have with me in studio today the Kitchen Sisters, award-winning uh, producers Davian Nelson and Nikki Silva. Uh, they are creators of hundreds of stories for public broadcast about the lives, histories, art, and rituals of people who have shaped our diverse cultural heritage. They're producers of the DuPont Columbia award-winning NPR series Hidden Kitchens. The two uh, Peabody Award-winning NPR series Lost and Found Sound and Sonic Memorial Project, at last with G. Allison. They're also producers of The Hidden World of Girls, a series of, uh, on NPR that explored the lives of girls and women they became and the making of, uh, about what people make in the Bay Area and why. Um, and uh, they say that uh, they are dedicated to creating public media and educational programs that work to build community through storytelling. We'll hear examples of their work. And you can interact with the Kitchen Sisters. Here's your chance. Um, who knows when they'll be back on Utah Public Radio again. We're happy to have them in studio today. 1-800-826-1495 is the toll-free number. 1-800-826-1495. Or email us to upraxcess at gmail.com. EP, upraxcess at gmail.com. And Kitchen Sisters, uh, we're keeping them busy in uh, with events in uh, Logan uh, through this week. There are a couple of events that are free and open to the public. First of those is uh, tonight, 7 o'clock, in the uh, Kane Performance Hall on the USUK campus. Uh, that is a Tanner Talks presentation presented by the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And there are, we understand, 60 tickets left. So uh, you uh, they're free, but you have to reserve your seat by going uh, to, and I should have written this down, so I'll just send you to uh, upr.org, upr.org. Um, and we'll get the information on the direct uh, link uh, later. Uh, also, there is an opportunity for you for a student. There's a student lecture that's happening tomorrow morning from 8 to 10 in the Edith Bowen Laboratory School Auditorium. So we welcome in uh, Davian Nelson. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And Nikki Silva. Hi, Tom. Coming. Thank you. And we have with us in studio, and, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have her uh, speak up from time to time, Martha Hamm, our friend from Southern Utah. Good to be here, Tom. Who is, uh, I guess, an honorary Kitchen Sister. You've, you've known the Kitchen Sisters for many years. About 40 years. Yeah. Um, so let me let me start with, I think people will be curious about your background. Start with Davia. What's, what was your background before the Kitchen Sisters? What were you up to? When I was in high school, I started radio back in high school as the noon disc jockey playing Grateful Dead and John Mayall and all kinds of music. And I wrote my high school career notebook on either being the first woman on the Supreme Court or a DJ and imagined that path. And as I went to UC Santa Cruz, they had a campus radio station, and I fell in love with doing radio there and graduated from college, wound up at the community station in Santa Cruz, and sort of the Supreme Court fell away. I don't know how. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to have a couple of options, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Music and justice. There there you go. Uh, Nikki Silva. Well, I I graduated from the University of California at Santa Cruz, both Davia and I did, but we didn't know each other in college. Mm. And after college, I was working at uh, the local um, Natural History History Art Museum, the regional museum in Santa Cruz, doing exhibits about people's lives and you know history and uh, the different science folks that were in town. And um, Davia and I kind of found ourselves on the same path in different mediums. I was doing exhibits about local history, and Davia was uh, wanting to do oral histories, and so. Um, we started hearing about each other. Mm. You know, this this woman was just by here. You know, you're, I'd, I'd arrive one day and they'd say, this woman was just here asking questions about my oral history and you're wanting to borrow my baskets, my Indian baskets, and you should really get to know her. You're on the same track. So, uh, <laughs> and then it finally took a boyfriend, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, to, to make us uh, meet. Mm. And Davia was going out with a friend of mine and he said, you know, you guys are sort of doing the same thing. <laughs> you might like each other. Yeah. So Davia came over to the museum, and we sat on the front porch of the museum one afternoon from about 2 in the afternoon till about 8 o'clock at night and just kind of fell in love mm. talking about oral history and our dreams. Boyfriends are often catalysts, I think, <laughs> positive Catalyst. or negative. Yeah. What does Al Green say? Love yeah. will make you do things. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so you guys met. And, and then uh, take us to Kitchen Sisters. What, how did that develop? Well, um, Davia was already doing a, a local 
show on KUSP, our little community station in Santa Cruz, and it was a two-hour live radio show. And so she kind of uh, lured me in to uh, the studio. But before that, we were out and about in the community doing oral history. That was really our love. And we um, kind of would get in Davia's little green Datsun and drive around and, and interview cowboys and fishermen and Italian grandmothers and, you know, anybody who moved practically and uh, started just getting to know where we lived and uh, find the stories there. And we'd come back to the studio and we'd play little bits of our interviews on the air and, and have live people in talking about their history in the region. And that's how we began. And our radio station was really kind of the test tube where we learned how to cut tape. And uh, we realized pretty quickly that nobody wanted to listen to the eight hours of tape that we had just gathered. So we better <laughs> right. figure out a way to right. cut it down to size. Yeah. And that's, I, I think, you know, people in radio know this, but uh, people listening, you, you, you do have to gather a lot of tape. As as it were, you, you, there's a lot below the surface, and then hopefully, what what is what is on the surface, uh, you know, it's like a swan gliding across the exactly the glassy water. Um, so, what was the goal, Davia? Then you, you you had this this show, and you started interviewing people, and then at some point, did a bigger goal appear that you, that you wanted to do? What what was the next step? Probably the next step was. There we were on the local station, and we were finding all these sort of local eccentrics, people who embodied the traditions of the region. And um, someone heard one of our stories, and they said, you know, that guy's story is so great. You should really try and put that on NPR. Mm. And we lived in a town that didn't have NPR at the time. We'd never heard it. It was sort of a rumor, but it wasn't something that either of us knew. And he said, you'll, and we'd probably played a 40-minute version of it, but he said, you'll have to cut it down. You'll have to make it into a story. And so we went into the studio and taught ourselves how to cut tape and how to mix. And we shaped our first piece, and he gave us the name of someone. I don't know if your listeners remember Alex Chadwick, but he's oh, yes. been mm-hmm. one of the greats of mm-hmm. public radio. And he launched the career of Jay Allison and Larry Massett and Barrett Golding and so many of the – maybe Scott Carrier as well, Utah's own right. Scott Carrier. And um, – he heard our first work. This was a piece called The Road Ranger, um, a costumed crusader, uh, the bloodhound of breakdown, the scourge of the tow hook and the long delay, a Vietnam veteran who came back from the war and uh, dressed sort of like the Lone Ranger and tried to rescue stranded travelers on this windy stretch of California highway. And Nikki had spotted him at the KOA near her house. And we went on patrol with him as he he just wasn't ready to take off his uniform after Vietnam, and he still needed to serve his country. And this is how he did. Anyway, we sent the story in. You know, it just was he was a fantastic storyteller, and he was a man with a mission. And I think that's at the core of so much of like what's the bigger goal. But at the same time, we just didn't know what on earth we were doing in terms of recording good sound or how to really do a mix. But they took our piece anyway. There was something in the spirit of it. And it launched us from being on the local station only to beginning to produce for the national radio and being part of NPR. Mm-hmm. Probably harder to get on NPR these days uh, because more people want to get on, right? It's, I don't know. Or do or you think it's about the same? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting moment because there was a moment when we were starting, it was hard to get on, but they were, it was very open and permeable in a, in a way because independents mm. were just starting. It was all starting right at that moment. We were part of the beginnings of it. And so were all these various independent people. And it was a place that it kind of encompassed more of this kind of programming itself back then. It wasn't mm-hmm. all news. Mm-hmm. That came later on. But now podcasts are sort of that place where a lot of the producers who produce more in our spirit are. Mm-hmm. And it was a little bit yeah. more flexible then. I mean, there there was no clock in the same way that, I mean, there mm-hmm. was a clock, but it was a much looser clock. And, you know, our early pieces were sometimes 22 minutes mm-hmm. long yeah. on All Things Considered, which is pretty unbelievable um, yeah. now at this point. So, there was a lot of room for experimentation and lots of wonderful people coming in with great ideas and trying out new things. And 
finding a sound. Mm. Yeah, pretty exciting. Of course, it's exciting now. It know, is. It's, it's, it it's is. an exciting world. I'll talk about what, what those developments have been as we go along. Um, do have a uh, an email uh, in from, from a listener. This is uh, our friend Amy Anderson uh, from Logan, uh, who asks, how did you develop your interview techniques? Was it intentional or did you just arrive at the, those techniques? Well, I think a lot of it really grew out of our love and interest in oral history. You know, it, that kind of feeling of, you know, make a long story longer, sit there and listen and really find your way into the person's life and um, and, and, and the sense of curiosity. And uh, people that are doing um, deadline news don't have that luxury, certainly, to uh, sit with a person or go back and visit a person time after time. Mm-hmm. But we did in those early days. And I think it really did um, impact the way we approach our are interviewing and it's 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 kind of in, embedded in our name too the kitchen sisters it's sitting around the table in the most comfortable room in the house and mm-hmm. spending that time to just try and hear a person's story and then from that point take it and distill it which you have to do but somehow like espresso make the person think that you you included absolutely everything they told you in that six minutes that you're putting on the air. Right. So um, I think that's, Dave, what would you say about our interviewing style? I, let's see. I mean, I think one of the things that we learned along the way was asking people to introduce themselves to make sure, I don't know how many people out in this community are doing interviews, but when people say their name, maybe where they grew up and what they do, we usually begin, our first question when we're in an interview and we learned it, I don't know where. I think it's a BBC trick or a BBC technique. You ask people, what did they have for breakfast? That's the very mm-hmm. first question. Right. And you do that because everyone knows what they had for breakfast. And so you are much more at ease immediately. And it's a point of departure. You just never know. Homeless people, they probably did not have breakfast this morning. Somebody from Sweden, they're suddenly talking to you about herring. Who would have thought you'd be talking about herring, you know? And then we move into asking people to introduce themselves, which can be an awkward moment in an interview. But there's something about that moment that I think begins to get you into the groove together. And I think because we're not um, narrating our pieces, because we're not going to hear our questions in it, we know we need people to kind of answer in more full sentences. So it sort of just gets people a little more into a groove as well. And also because it's an oral history style interview, it's not usually so long. And I mean, it is usually a little longer. So people are able to kind of go and keep often what we realize is the maybe don't start the interview with the hardest questions and the deepest memory because you, the interviewer, may have been thinking about this forever and you can't wait to interview this person and you've done all this research. But that person, especially if you're asking them to dig deep in their memory, they might not be right at that subject. But if you talk for a while, it's, things warm up, things percolate, things come up from the memory bank. So maybe save some of those questions for deeper in. Mm. I think also sort of um, questions about food, um, about I mean, beyond your breakfast, but food memories, um, music memories, really transport people quickly, you know, to another time and another place. And it also relaxes the interview. I mean, when you ask someone to describe the soundtrack of their life, you know, what was what was playing on the radio when you were growing up? It, it transports people. They begin to see things. They begin to remember things in a more vivid way. And it's the same with the food. Um, describe describe the meals you had as a child with your grandfather uh, and grandmother at their house. Mm. You're, you're there. When you're telling me that story, you're there. And I think that's where you're always trying to get your interviewee is back to, you know, to that place so that the, the answers are less formal. It, it occurs to me, I don't know if, whether Amy was going this direction with her question, but it occurs to me as we're talking, this, this has a lot of parallels with, with oral history, with with sitting down with, you know, a story core kind of a thing, sitting down with your with with a loved one and uh, Very trying to make so. them feel comfortable. And, mm-hmm. and that's a that's a wonderful experience. I had a chance to interview my mother for for the, the when the story core booth came to Vernal. And that was and I've done many interviews, but that, of course, was a very special interview mm-hmm. uh, to sit down with my mother and and 
you know, what does David Isley say? It, it, listening is an act of love, right? It's, and it's, it is interesting if people, the StoryCorps uh, work that you guys are doing here is just, I'm so happy to hear about all the work that's being done. And, and when you get into that booth with your relative, I mean, I know when I interviewed my mother, I, you know, just her posture, everything about how she answered the questions changed her. She, she felt, mm-hmm. I think, honored and respected yeah. that I was asking. And I heard things from her I had never heard before. Mm-hmm. And she, she took it very seriously. So I would just highly recommend that for mm-hmm. anybody. Yeah. Well, one thing, too, when we started out, it was rare to see anybody with headphones, rare to see anyone with a microphone. We were freaks walking around with this sort of large cassette recorder and wired up. And now there are your telephone. You can just turn your telephone into a recording device in a second. And so it's just so much – there's so much more ease and everyone is so much more used to doing it and being – and half the people are walking around with headphones anyway. So mm-hmm. it is sort of we're oral history nation on some <laughs> level. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Yeah, everybody's walking around with headphones. It kind of isolates us a little bit, but you can turn that around and make a connection. Let's, uh, let's hear, uh, I want to hear some pieces, uh, give some examples, uh, especially for people who, uh, I assume they're those few numbers of people who are not familiar with Kitchen Sisters' work, but let's start with WHER. And we aired this in full uh, a couple of weeks ago here on Utah Public Radio. The This is a thousand beautiful watts, the first all-girl radio station uh, in the country. We're going to hear a clip where a woman DJ talks about meeting Sam Phillips. Is there anything you want to say to set this up? Well, Sam Phillips was the man who started the Memphis Recording Service and then Sun Studios, and he discovered Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, Howlin' Wolf, Roy Orbison. And with the money he got from selling Elvis Presley's contract to Colonel Tom Parker, he opened up the first all-girl radio station in the nation, which is Memphis, Tennessee, 1955. And when he started this all-girl station, he didn't tell the women that he was starting an all-girl station. It was as if he was hiring the one girl that Mm. would, each station had maybe one girl who hosted the housewife hour. And so little did they know as these women were hired from all over that they would be on an all-girl station. (laughs) Let's hear this. This is a clip from WHER, A Thousand Beautiful Watts. The probability of measurable rain is 30% this afternoon, increasing to 60% tonight. The latest air pollution index in Memphis is 1.02, or 20% coefficient of haze in the Memphis air. This is classified as moderate by the Shelby County Health Department. This has been the latest WHER worldwide and local news. Joan Medley reporting. Stay tuned to WHER for all the news as it happens. The sound that we were projecting had very little to do with news, although we were at news twice an hour. It was kind of a surface approach until March. March made us newsworthy. And good afternoon to you. My name is Marge Thrasher, and I'm your listener and moderator. From now until 2 o'clock, as WHER Radio turns our microphones over to you, the listeners. Charlie Sullivan called me to do this talk show. He said, Meg, I got just the thing for you. You don't want to stay home with those kids anymore. Anyway, I went on the air and had never heard a talk show. Nobody had talk radio. KDKA in Pittsburgh. And that was it, as far as I know. It was called Open Mic. You were on the air in a big glassed-in window, and everybody in town was listening. here on WHER. Before we talk to our guests, we would like to review our rules and regulations for Open Mic. Open mic is operated with a seven-second delay in case we do need to delete portions of conversation or comments. See, nobody and knew what to do with talk radio, especially me. I mean, I never even heard a show. I said, Charlie, what makes you think somebody's going to call? And he said, no, no, they'll call. Are you there? Can you hear? <laughs> oh, and I'm not getting any conversation. Yellow? Can you push the last button all the way down? Yellow? That's it. That puts you in contact with us. I remember I used to put the mayor on, Henry Loeb, maybe once every two weeks. And anybody could call him. He loved money it. to establish the camp. We are uh, sponsoring the premiere of The Godfather in Memphis. Oh! On March the 23rd. And uh, we would be happy to uh, sell tickets to anyone. 
So that's a clip. It's, it's, it wasn't the clip I thought, but this is more on a, on a talk uh, show. Did uh, you ever feel like would, that? Yeah, yeah I, I have. I have felt like that. Yes, I have. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen on live radio, right? Um, it, there's a nice energy to it, but also bad things can happen, too. Um, so that's W-H-E-R. That was the first all-girl radio station. Um, the and, amazingness of that is there's this first all-girl radio station, and that was the second live talk show in the entire history of wow. live call-in talk shows. That's how innovative they were. Mm-hmm. There was one I don't even know. None of them, like you hear Marge saying, none of them had heard it. It was the first time also that they had live sports casting on the radio. Peggy, um, their sports casting reporter, would go to all the golf tournaments. And ultimately, she wound up on CBS, this phenomenal sports reporter. But it was just a pioneering station all the way through, even though it was only a thousand beautiful watts. And, wow. And Peggy Sternberger, who was mm-hmm. the sportscaster, her secret was to get all the the golfers in particular was her uh, her beat. She'd wear these big hats and they could always recognize Peggy, but she wasn't allowed in the clubhouse. So she'd have to wait outside to interview the guys. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's pretty fascinating history. And when we did this story and we tracked down um, we tracked down about 20 of the original women who worked on the station. Their children, many of their children, had never even heard about this chapter of their life, that uh, that they were involved in this really unusual, I mean, groundbreaking, really, in terms of uh, uh, media um, effort of Sam Phillips. I mean, and it started out as sort of a novelty. And in the first studio that they had, you know, they had, um, you know, bras and panties hang- hanging <laughs> in the lobby of the uh, second Holiday mm-hmm. Inn in the world, where uh, just to kind of play on the idea of all-girl uh, radio. But over the years, it really did evolve into this kind of place where a lot of uh, future you know, media women got their got their start. We are talking with the Kitchen Sisters, if you just joined us, uh, Davy Nelson and Nikki Silva, and they are in Logan for a series of events uh, hosted, presented by Utah Public Radio. The first of those is tonight at 7 o'clock in the Kane Performance Hall. It's a Tanner Talks presentation, and that's presented by the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. That is free, but you have to reserve your seat, and you can... Uh, you can uh, get more information on that going to upr.org. Upr.org. We have some 60 uh, seats left for tonight. Then tomorrow morning, uh, between 8 and uh, 10, beginning at 8, in the Edith uh, Bowen Laboratory School Auditorium, there is uh, a student lecture. So you're welcome to come to that as as well. Uh, we want to go to break. First of all, I want to follow up with WHER. Um, Davia, you... You and uh, Nikki uh, sort of, well, not sort of, became friends with Sam and, and Becky Phillips, right? And, and some of the all-girl DJs and uh, were sort of part of the the rest of the story, I believe. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's one of the great things that's ever happened to us. I mean, it was like finding our sort of sonic godmothers, our, these women who pioneered before we... Um, I had been living in Memphis for a few months. I was a casting director and working with Francis Coppola on the Rainmaker set. And there was a scene, I don't know how many people saw that movie. It was a John Grisham novel, and Mickey Rourke's office turned out to be all the furniture from Sam Phillips' recording studio, Mm. and it was so cool. And Sam's son Knox was on the set with the um, furniture, and we got to talking with him, and he started... Nikki and I were just starting this project called Lost and Found Sound. You mentioned it earlier. We collaborated with Jay Allison on it. It was at the turn of the millennium. Anyway, we told him about this uh, radio series we were doing about people possessed by sound and how sound had shaped the last hundred years. And he began to tell us about his father, Sam Phillips, who had done this all recording. He said, you'll have to come over because you got to meet my father. He recorded Elvis and all these people. And you have to meet my mother because he and my mother started the first all-girl radio station in the nation. So Nikki flew out the next day. We drove over to the Phillips family house and did an oral history. I think if you look back at that transcript with Sam, we asked one question and two hours later we asked the second question. (laughs) It was he, the man could tell a story. The man had something to say. Anyway, Becky was there, as was his girlfriend Sally. And that just brought us into the world of the Phillips family. And then 
they introduced us one after another to the women that they knew that were still in town from WHR. And each of those women then would introduce us to somebody else. And it kept fanning out. And sometimes people would find the story just from when the story aired on All Things Considered. A woman was driving in Florida, pulled over, called her local station, said, I was one of those women on WHER, and everyone had lost track of her, so we wound up doing an oral history with her. And it, and then it was so beautiful. The Museum of Television and Radio let us bring all the women to New York when the story premiered and honored them, and we recreated the station there. And then we did a big public radio conference in Memphis with all the women, and it's just kept going. And Nikki put together this beautiful book of all the sort of oral histories and photographs with the women and it just keeps going. We're trying. We're working on a Broadway musical. Oh, really? Based yeah. on that story. Oh, so, great. yeah, that's all full look, circle. Look forward to that. And Nikki, uh, this I made a connection before we went on the air. I'll bring it up on the air here. It's it's what public radio can do. It's it's you know you were able to connect. I think you said the, some of these women with the the story with their families. They haven't told their families this story. Yeah, they, it was it was very moving. I mean. Um, Janie Joplin, one of the women, actually, when she passed away, we had interviewed her. And when she passed away, her her family got in touch with us, and they wanted and they featured this uh, this piece at at the at her memorial, and it was just very meaningful to them. They mm-hmm. had never known that part of her her life and uh, that she was such a pioneer, and, and she just she's just a wonderful. Uh, Full, rich woman. She started out as a, a telephone operator. If you hear the piece, she's the one who always wore headphones uh-huh. right. <laughs> from right. being a telephone it, gal. Right. It was also amazing after she died, the family said in lieu of flowers, they asked that donations go to NPR to oh, Nash really? because really? of yeah. the power of the piece. Often it's raising awareness. It's it's also building community, as it's as in your mission statement, the Kitchen Sisters. The connection I was making was uh, this the, the recent um, outpouring of love for Bob Ebeling, the, uh, the Thackle engineer here in Utah, who carried decades worth of guilt. Uh, he did try to warn uh, the, the you know the the launch uh, deciders about Challenger, which exploded. Um, mm. But he did felt like he hadn't done enough, and so he he carried that guilt for years. When uh, Howard Burkus did the story recently, there was thousands of letters came into to the Ebeling family, and and that in his last weeks and months of life was able to finally help him to let go of that that guilt. Just just powerful. Um, that's, a, a, that's a, a real thing. conversation. I mean, yeah. I think that that's what's so different about public radio at this point, particularly when you look at the news yeah. atmosphere. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. I mean that that people are actually talking about things and. Yeah. Listening to both sides or all sides, as it were. Let's take a break, um, and when we come back, we'll hear some more. We will we'll hear a interesting piece with Utah ties, um, Crimea River, which uh, you'll hear the uh, several different voices. Well, including uh, legendary river runner Ken Slight, who people in southern Utah will be very familiar with. We'll hear this. Also, want to hear an interesting piece. Uh, from prison, there was, and Martha put a put a half hour together of pieces from the Kitchen Sisters, and we aired this recently on uh, Prison Life. So that's an, another great example. You're welcome to interact with the Kitchen Sisters. We have them here for the hour at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Toll free one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail dot com. Upraxcess at gmail dot com. Following this break. This is State of the Arts. Every home should have a work of original art, according to Alice Merrill Horn, an early Utah legislator who ran for office in 1898 on a platform of advancing the arts. Representative Horn wrote legislation that organized the nation's first state arts council, established a statewide art competition, and appropriated state funds for a collection of work by Utah artists that continues to this day. She encouraged school children from around the state to contribute nickels and dimes from their milk money to buy art for public places such as schools and libraries. That early investment has paid off. Utah is now home to more than 9,000 professional artists, and Utah's art galleries are a $159 million industry. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm privileged to have in studio with me the Kitchen Sisters, Davian Nelson and Nikki Silva. Uh, we also have with us uh, in studio Martha Ham, who's a radio producer, along with your day job, which is... Yeah, you're a therapist, yes, in, in uh, southern Utah. But you're up for the for the events. Yes. And uh, Martha's been helping us with uh, the Kitchen Sisters content that we've been uh, presenting on Utah Public Radio. So thank you for that. Uh, you're welcome to interact with Kitchen Sisters, who are award-winning uh, radio producers. Uh, we've heard uh, an uh, excerpt from WHER. We're going to hear an excerpt from Crimea River and from Wall Street. If we get time, we'll hear some uh, an excerpt from Georgia Gilmore. Um, Kitchen Sisters are behind... Uh, Many of the series that you have heard, including Hidden Kitchens, Lost and Found Sound, Sonic Memorial Project, The Hidden World of Girls, and latest uh, The Making of, about what people make in the Bay Area and why. Uh, so let's uh, let's jump right into uh, Crimea River. Um, I don't know if uh, someone wants to set this up. What? Uh, how did this come, come about? Well, I'm also going to lay this piece on Martha's doorstep. Martha Ham has a lot to do with this piece. Um, I began river rafting some 40 years ago, and Martha was at the heart of that experience. The second river trip I ever went on was in part because of Martha. And she brought me onto so many rivers in Utah across the years. And the whole community of, and Martha was the first person who told me about a man, once I'd started to fall in love with rafting wild rivers in the West, Martha told me about the... um, Mark Dubois, who they, there was a river in California called the Stanislaus, which was, was going to be filled and dammed with the New Malonis Dam. And Mark, a young man, he chained himself to the rocks in the canyon in order to stop them from damming the river. And nobody knew where he was chained. They just knew this young man was in the canyon, and if they filled it, he would be drowned. And Martha was the one that told me that story, and that story haunted me. And cut two years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, our colleague Jay Allison and some other radio producers began the series, Stories from the Heart of the Land, and they turned to Nikki and I and they said, would we produce a story for it? Some stories from the heart of the land, and just Mark Dubois' story just came roaring back to me, and the whole idea of people... And also by then, I guess you probably had also, Martha, told me the story of David Brower and the damming of Glen Canyon. Maybe you'll fill people in real quick before we hear the cut. And that led, and then I believe you also told us about Katie Lee, which became the triad, something about Kitchen Sister stories. We love to do things in threes. So here was this three pioneering river activists of the West. Maybe will you just do a little sketch, and Martha? And Ken Slight. And I was working for Ken at the time I met you, and many of you know, Ken is an icon here in Utah in the environmental movement. And one of our phrases that we enjoyed so much was how Ken would say, well, I've been thinking it over in my mind. <laughs> and we, uh, and when Ken's thinking it over in his mind, um, that means something is brewing in terms of leading the movement, the environmental movement. And um, anyway, Crimea River is a beautiful story about his humble beginnings as a conservative and how losing something like Glen Canyon was so important to him that it changed almost everything about him. Mm. Let's hear this clip then from uh, this. You'll hear several voices here. Um, This is from uh, Crimea River. Never saw the old Glen Canyon just dammed it up. In the great era of dam building, there was no greater name than Floyd Dominey. Under his leadership, 300 dams jumped off the drawing boards and into the canyons. He wishes there were more. When I was made commissioner, effective May 1, 1959, everybody thought that uh, managing water was was a desirable thing and it was in the public interest. And we had no naysayers in those days. We didn't have lint pickers uh, behind every bush. For example, Glen Canyon Dam was authorized in April of 1956. And we actually started construction within six months. Why, today, we'd have spent six months trying to find out where to put the toilet for the rock scalers. What they had 
designed was to place a couple dams up in the dinosaur area and one down in uh, Glen Canyon and a couple down in Grand Canyon. The first ones they were going to build was up in Dinosaur. That was when the Sierra Club came out and Dave Brower fought very hard against that and they succeeded. But after they won that battle, they completely forgot about saving the Glen Canyon. Mr. David Brower, you, do you have a greater regret in your life than Glen Canyon Dam? Not yet. I had just become executive director of the Sierra Club, and that was my top priority. Let's get Glen Canyon Dam built and save Dinosaur National Monument until I learned what was in Glen Canyon. I was ready to give Glen Canyon away because I didn't know what was there. The Sierra Club didn't. We were telling them about it, all of us running the rivers. This is a big mistake. We had a little organization going, Friends of Glen Canyon, posing this dam. And that's what Abby and I talked about around the campfire, ranting and raving against the dam. That was the beginning of his monkey ranch gang. Ed Abbey and Ken Slight were real good friends. Ed Abbey wrote the Monkey Wrench Gang, which features a group of people who put sand and sugar in gas tanks of bulldozers. They tear down power lines to get rid of Glen Canyon Dam. One of the characters was called Seldom Seen Smith. That was modeled after Ken Slight. Much of my writing, as you may know, is for the sake of environmentalism. And I've also taken part in a few demonstrations, engaged in a few illegal activities here and there, what we call monkey wrenching. People get unduly concerned over trivial things like tossing beer cans in a ditch along a highway while remaining unaware of the really, truly vast destruction that is taking place, whole forests being clear-cut, when the whole West and the whole planet is being destroyed by overpopulation and over-industrialization. I think it's uh, foolish to get excited about things like beer cans along the highway. Beer cans um, are much more beautiful than highways, in my view. It's the highways that are ugly, not the beer cans. I knew that the water was going to come up. But when it did, I wasn't ready for it. When you actually see that water come up, inch by inch, covering all the beautiful things you ever wanted to see. The Indian ruins that the Anasazi had built came up there and tumbled them over. Covered over the pictographs of the petroglyphs, all the writings. Uh, covered up Gregory National Bridge and Music Temple. Cathedral in the desert, Hidden Passage, all those beautiful things that meant so much to me. I was taking 12, 15 trips down there a year. Pretty soon you think that that belongs to you. This land is your land, this land is my land, you know, that type of thing. As the water came up, all the wildlife, they couldn't go anywhere. And there they drowned. The beaver drowning the beaker. It was more than I could, I, I could really do. I've been an activist ever since. That's Ken Slight, I think, at the end there, right in there. You heard several voices, including that of Ed Abbey and uh, Floyd Dominey. That was quite the, quite the voice at the beginning of the, <laughs> of the, of the piece. Uh, sort of, uh, kind of from another time. Uh, that that attitude. Well, you do you do still hear it today, but I think uh, people with that that point of view tend to know to temper it a little bit in front of certain audiences. Uh, so tell I me, love that phrase, lint pickers behind lint pickers, yeah. every bush. He's just so expressive. Right. Tell me about meeting uh, Ken, Ken Slight and interviewing him. Oh, my God. That is the sli- That man gave us the slip. <laughs> we went with Martha to Pack Creek Ranch, and Ken is not a man who's trying to be in the limelight. He's not trying to be on the media. I mean, he has his issues, and he will stop at nothing to, you know, fight for the things he believes in. But he's not looking for to be in the media's light. Anyway, we came to do this oral history with him. We were working on this piece. It was amazing that we were invited in, and that was because of Martha. And we had this wonderful dinner, and kept kind of pushing off the interview and pushing off the interview and we'll we'll do it first thing tomorrow morning 
And we got up and we were, you know, you don't usually think of yourself as laying in wait to do an interview with somebody, but it was sort of that feeling. Mm. And darn if Ken didn't give us the slip and was nowhere we were running to be after found. him <laughs> to try and find him. Where is he? <laughs> Track him down. So he Mark, disappeared Mark. on an errand and came back in his truck. And they walked up to his truck, stopped it in the driveway, and stood there for an hour and a half in the cold. <laughs> and recorded Ken in his pickup truck. Mm. And it turned out to be a great setting because the pickup truck functioned as a sound booth. Yeah. It sounded, sounded pretty good. Martha, you say that, um, I guess it's, it's your thought, he turned into seldom's uh, seen Smith, sort of right well, before your eyes. Listen, exactly. people who don't know, that's the character from Ed Abbey that I guess is based on Ken's Seldom Slight. seen slight. Oh, yes. seldom seen slight, slight. yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and and well, he, he, gets, I, he gets emotional, Ken Slight does. Of course, a lot of people are emotional about the. I think for me, I, it's the story of the river and the loss of it, but so much of it is with Katie Lee, too, uh, and Mark Dubois, it's the transformation of these characters as they kind of learn and fall in love with the river and what mm-hmm. the river teaches them. I mean, at one point, Ken says, you know, the river taught me everything, you know, taught me who I am. And it's that, you know, it's transformation within this larger story of transforming the land that uh, is so compelling to me. So you interviewed some people. Some of those voices for, are from archive tape as well. You, Lots, you, yeah. You, you have mm-hmm. to bring those in to, to get their voices. That's We love to do that. I mm-hmm. mean, that's uh, kind of, I think, that comes from our oral history uh, love as well. P- the p- you know pulling from the people who came before us and and sort of mining that huge archive of voices and pulling them into the mix because it's something about the voice. You could read those same things that Dominie said mm-hmm. on a piece of paper and they would not have the same mm-hmm. impact. It's it's the tone of his voice, the way he says it, the arrogance, the certitude. You know that yeah. kind of we go. Oh, I know this man. I know yeah. who he is. Right. Let's take uh, – go ahead, and then we'll take well, another Well, just break. to say, also going back to your earlier question or Amy's earlier question about interviewing, we always do that slate, too, because we're making use of so much archival audio. And when at the top, we are always praying someone will say, I'm Floyd Dominey or I'm mm-hmm. David Brower and making – you know, somehow having that. Right. So we're kind of recording with an eye to the future, hopefully 30 years from now – two young women will decide to produce whatever they call radio at that point and they'll find our tapes and they'll mm-hmm. go, oh, listen, there was Ken Slide introducing himself or Katie Lee and it just gives them a deeper, even place to go with the tape. A lot of, yeah, a lot of tape that you have in your archives that could be used. It could be, uh, could just be used. Saying. For, yeah. <laughs> just saying. Okay. KitchenSisters.org, right? But, uh, let's take another break and, and we'll come back for our final segment with the Kitchen Sisters. Kitchen Sisters are in Logan for several events. A couple of those are free and open to the public. First of those is tonight uh, at 7 o'clock in the Kane Performance Hall on the USU campus. Uh, this is presented by the uh, USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. It's a Tanner Talks presentation. Uh, it is free, uh, but you do need to reserve your seat. You can do that by going uh, to arts.usu.edu, arts.usu.edu. You could also go to upr.org for more information. And there is a student lecture beginning at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, in the Edith Bowen Laboratory School Auditorium. So you're welcome to that as well. More information on all of these events at upr.org. Let's take a break. More when we come back. After 33 states, it's now Wisconsin's turn to decide. Democrat Bernie Sanders is hoping to keep his winning streak alive. Republican Donald Trump is far ahead in the hunt for delegates, but has high negatives in this key swing state. I'm Scott Detrow. Join me and the NPR politics team for live coverage of the Wisconsin primary tomorrow from NPR News. Join us tomorrow evening at 7 here on Utah Public Radio. When playwright Sarah Burgess started writing her play about private equity firms, it was like learning a new language. I think I was really drawn to the challenge of writing about a world that I'm not inside, but trying to sort of at least to some degree in a simplified form mimic the way they might talk to each other when there's not an outsider present. I'm Adrian Hill. A play about finance that's also a comedy. That's next time on Marketplace from APM. Join us Monday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. 
Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, I have with me in studio the Kitchen Sisters, award-winning producers Davian Nelson and Nikki Silva. We also have with us uh, radio producer and UPR friend Martha Ham in studio. We have another uh, six or seven minutes left, and you can interact with the Kitchen Sisters here at upraxcess at gmail.com or toll-free to 1-800-826-1495. couple of events that you are invited to featuring the Kitchen Sisters tonight at 7 o'clock in the Kane Performance Hall on the USU campus, a Tanner Talks presentation, uh, which is supported by the College of Humanities and Social Sciences 2015-2016 Tanner Talks, a series of cross-disciplinary events. That is uh, free and open to the public, but you do need to reserve your seat, and you can go to arts.usu.edu to reserve your seat for tonight, 7 o'clock tonight. And then there's a student lecture uh, tomorrow morning at 8 in Edith Bowen Laboratory School Auditorium. Before we go to our next uh, clip, which is from Wall Street, I don't know, did we cover where, you, where your name came from? Kitchen Sisters? We, we, we uh, talked about how you came together, and I, I think I'd be accused of radio <laughs> malpractice if we didn't ask that question. Uh, so how's the name come up? Well, it's actually a, a name that grew out of us sort of preparing for one of our live radio shows in, at KUSP where we started out. And uh, Davia and I, I, I had just moved out to a piece of land with a group of people, and we were starting uh, a commune, as they call it. And um, uh, Davia and I were uh, cooking a salmon dinner. And at the ta- at, for, for this group of people, a funky stove, funky little shack we were living in. And at the same time, we were preparing for uh, our show. And uh, we were getting ready to interview a, um, an architectural historian who had written a book, The Sidewalk Companion to Santa Cruz Architecture. And we were desperately looking through this book for something interesting to kind of grab onto and, and talk to this guy about. And we found the story of the Kitchen Brothers, uh, these two brothers, stonemasons, who uh, in the 1940s uh, built these walls and chimneys and abalone and brick creations throughout town. And you could see these all around town. And all there were these marvelous neighborhood stories about these two brothers. They built by the light of the moon and they sent and receive messages to submarines lurking in Monterey Bay during World War II. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. And we just fell in love. And while we were falling in love, we burned the dinner and completely annihilated this salmon meal, which we didn't hear the end of for quite some time from the family. And um, so the next day when we we were uh, doing our show with this guy. We, we sort of, things got a little boring, and we turned to him and said, well, tell us about the Kitchen kitchen Brothers, not to be confused with the Kitchen Sisters who are here with you today. And we both cracked up. And friends heard, heard us on the air, and an, one of them made a bumper sticker that said, free the Kitchen Sisters. And <laughs> I mean, it just became this little uh, mm-hmm. inside funny joke. But really, the name stuck and it 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 meant something in a way it was the the casual conversations that you have with people in the kitchen and uh, you know feeling comfortable talking to another person and the best stories and uh, the warmth and the food and the conviviality so mm-hmm. it's it's a name that's done us so well and it's stuck like like a lot of great things happen by accident but it, it's very very appropriate uh, let's I want to fit this uh, this other piece in uh, this is from a very interesting piece called Wall Street uh, a man serving a sentence of 54 years to life for his part in a robbery attempt that ended in murder and so two decades he was 17 at the time two decades later he became uh, such a whiz at buying and selling stocks while in prison everybody inside calls him Wall Street so let's hear this clip cell phones in pocket knives. My name is Clarence Long, and I'm in San Quentin Prison. Me and Wall Street were sellies at one time. He used to stay up till four in the morning studying the stocks. I'd be sleeping. He'd be up going through his portfolio and reading paper. You know, when I learned how to read, I started reading candy wrappers and clothing logos, and it was like my mind opened to a whole different thing. I read articles and memorize content that I need, and I take a vanilla envelope, and I file them into a system. You used to see him teaching classes on the yard. People sitting in the bleachers listening to him. Once he showed me you can invest in companies and get dividends, that's what got me started learning about the stock. The way it works is they have access to a phone. They can call anybody who will accept their call. This is Global Telling. You have a call from Wall Street, an inmate at San Quentin. I don't have any computer time. <laughs> I don't have access to be on the internet. 
I would call home, say, hey, I want to buy 1,000 shares of American Apparel. And when I'm on the phone with them, they'll be on the computer. Online brokers, E-Trade, they'll tell me what the closing prices are for the day, and I would know where to tell them what to buy. Yeah, fascinating piece. And we are this early on, on Utah Public Radio. We just have a couple minutes left. Uh, Dave, anything you want to say about uh, Wall Street? Well, I really could use some advice with my pension and my savings, yeah. and I found myself like every prison guard at San Quentin and every inmate seeking that advice from him. He was, when it at 17, couldn't read, couldn't write, and wound up becoming possessed by, um, once he learned to read and write, by the market and by financial responsibility, and he teaches a class on Thursday nights, the financial literacy program in the prison that they are trying to replicate now in prisons throughout California. So he has just turned his life around through this world of books and numbers opening up to him. A story of transformation once again. Right. We are just about out of time. I want to uh, give out the information again. Uh, so just briefly, David, uh, tonight Tanner Talks presentation seat still open yes. you have to reserve your seat at arts.usu.edu we're hoping you'll be, to see you'll be, you there you'll be playing some uh, clips for yeah, you yeah that we will and we have some surprises and we really okay. look forward to meeting logan and Utah. to talking to everyone yeah we'll have a lot of questions and answers so we'd love to see you great uh, so seats still available uh that is free but uh, you do need to reserve your seat so go to arts.usu.edu or you can go to upr.org that's the tanner talks presentation tonight at seven o'clock in the Kane performance hall on the usu campus and that's presented by the college of humanities and social sciences at utah state university there is another event open uh, to the public uh, a student lecture at edith bowen laboratory school auditorium on the usu campus that begins at eight o'clock tomorrow morning and uh, many other events uh, through the week uh, Davia Nelson and uh, Nikki Silva, thanks so much oh, for coming thank in. thank you. It's been fun. And uh, thanks for coming and spending the week with us. We're having a great time already in Logan. And Martha Hand, thanks. Thank thanks so you. much. Um, thank you for listening uh, today. Uh, tomorrow we're going to uh, talk about uh, the refugee crisis around the world. Uh, there's a lot of movement in Utah to, to help refugees, a big push from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and other churches. We're going to be talking with uh, some people who uh, will tell us ways to get involved there. That's the program tomorrow. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today.